Well, we are back in Jonah. We're back with Jonah, and we're in chapter 3. So if you would, turn with me to Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to keep making our way through this. Now, our plan is to finish chapter 3 before Christmas. During Christmas, during the month of December, we'll focus on messianic prophecies or something related to Christmas And then in January, we'll come back and we'll finish off Jonah chapter 4, and we'll be done with the book, and then we'll move to the next book in the Minor Prophets, and Abner and I and Chris, we have yet to speak about what book that will be. But for now, we are in Jonah chapter 3, and uh, we'll look specifically at Jonah 3 verses 4, 5, and 6 today. And we're obviously, we're familiar with Jonah Uh, So we're used to the fact, we're used to the end of the story that the Ninevites repent. To us, it's no surprise. It's a well-known ending. It's expected that the Ninevites come to the repentance uh, of God and that they believe in God. But the fact of the matter is that this, their repentance, it is a huge miracle. To have one person believe in God, that's a miracle in its own right. To have 600,000 people believe in God, that is a mind-blowing thought. It's just incredible. You think about Santa Clarita. And Dr. Greg Frazier said last time that Santa Clarita is the promised land. (laughs) But you think about Santa Clarita, there's 250,000 people there. Imagine that everyone in Santa Clarita becomes a believer. Right, but even if everybody believes in that uh, in that land, even that won't reach the magnitude that of the miracle that we see in Nineveh. You would have to add Silmar, which is ninety thousand people. You would have to add Granada Hills, sixty thousand; Chatsworth, forty thousand; Northridge, seventy thousand; Sun Valley, eighty thousand; and then the Sunland and the Tahunga area with twenty thousand. I mean, you're talking about the valley from the church and just spreading to the east and to the west and going north to the end of Santa Clarita, and then you'll have about 600,000 people believing. So you just think about that everybody in your family who lives in that area is a believer. All of your neighbors believe in God. You can leave your house unlocked. That's funny right now, but (laughs) you can leave your car unlocked. So you, you, th- you think about this, and it's a small glimpse. It's just a brief glimpse of the millennium where everyone or majority of the people are believers. And this reality or this event is completely unexpected in the book of Jonah with the Ninevites. Nineveh was too rich. It was too powerful. It was too wicked. It was too proud. And it was too non-Jewish to repent because God didn't make the promises to the Ninevites, to the Gentiles. God made those promises to the Israelites. And so you have the combination of all of these elements and they do not create a situation in which a nation comes to believe in God. If you look on the map on the screen, you can see there a map of Nineveh. It's in the ancient Near East, so it's to the northeast of Israel. And this place is a historical 
place. Nineveh had historical pride where the first cities were built. And if you go to the next slide, it just zooms in a little bit on this. But this is where the first cities were built. And Nineveh was one of the first cities that was built by Nimrod, a historical hero. In Genesis 10, 11, it talks about this. Nineveh had royal pride where it ultimately became a capital city and a royal city and where kings would spend their time and they would dwell there as kings. Nineveh had military pride. It was strong. It was vicious. It implemented the military practices that the rest of Assyria implemented, some of which I mentioned last time. It had cultural pride. So it had parks, botanical gardens, like the Huntington Gardens or the Disconso Gardens that we have. And for all the animal lovers out here, they had zoos. They had zoos with lions and bears and wolves and snakes. It had intellectual pride. This is for all of the avid readers in this room, for the TMU students, for the TMS students. You can see on the screen that there's a a series of different discoveries that were made of texts. And these are, so to say, They're not books, but they're tablets with text written on them, which record some of the literature, some of the creative writing, uh, the things that they believed. So, And later on, just right after the era that we're studying, they discovered a library where all of these texts were gathered and kept and preserved, representing some of the things that the people were reading at that time in that city. And related to this, Nineveh had religious pride. It had texts that described their gods, the way that their gods interacted with one another. It had texts that described the creation of the world, texts that described the flood, not like the Bible, but their own version of the flood, and just the way that they as humans related to their gods. This was a proud nation. It was not a nation on the verge of repentance. But in spite of all of this, God achieves a massive revival in this city, and the entire city repents. And there's no way to explain this except to admit and to acknowledge that this was a miracle. It was an absolute miracle achieved by God. You look at this, and you see that God achieved a miraculous salvation of sinners in Nineveh, And as we look at this passage today, we see this come out in three parts. We see God's miraculous salvation through the preaching of Jonah, God's miraculous salvation in the repentance of the people, and God's miraculous salvation in the repentance of the king himself. Now as we start, the first thing we see is we see God's miraculous salvation of the Ninevites through the preaching of Jonah when we see Jonah begin to preach a message of doom and destruction. And you can see this when you look at verse 4. Verse 4 says that as soon as Jonah came to Nineveh, it says, Then Jonah began to go into the city one day's walk, and he called out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. As we look at this just small portion of the text, we first of all see that the text begins by setting up the miracle that is about to take place. It says that Jonah began to go into the city. It was a one day's walk for Jonah. 
In verse 3, it says that Nineveh was a city that requires a three days walk, actually. Verse 3 says Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. In other words, a city great to God. And then it says it was a three days walk. So as we look at this, we would expect for Jonah to take three days to go through the nation of Nineveh and to bring the message to them. Typically, in that society, the first day would be spent to go to the public and to bring the message to the people. The second day would then be spent to go to the king, to the royalty, and bring the message to the royalty. And then the third day would be spent to wrap things up, to finish off the journey, and then to depart from that city. It would be a three-day journey. But as we look at this, we don't actually see Jonah doing this for three days. The entire mission comes to an end after day one. Because the Ninevites immediately repent. They believe. Jonah only begins and then everything is done with. Everyone repents. But that is the part of the miracle in this mission. That is the miracle that God achieves, how fast it all happens. And this shows that God is behind this, that he's involved in all of this. He is the one who is responsible for the repentance and for the salvation of sinners. And if you think about scripture in general, that's exactly what the Bible teaches us that God is behind every salvation, every repentance of every human being. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.5 that the messengers, the preachers, they go and they preach the gospel. They, they uh, sow the seeds and they water the seeds. But then Paul says, but it is God who gives. After the text sets up this miracle, we see the miracle achieved. We see that it is achieved through Jonah's message, through Jonah's preaching. And his message is eight words. You can count the words in his message. It's actually five words in Hebrew. And these five words cause the people to repent, to recognize God and to believe in him. Now we could ask, was this it? Was this the whole message that Jonah preached? Or did he say more? Well, when you look at the text, you see that this is a short message, so he could have said more. There could have been follow-up conversation about this. But the way that the text presents this message is that this was the message. So it could have been more if there, were, if there was more conversation about this. But the text presents this as the sermon that Jonah delivered. One thing that we have to conclude is that whether this was the full message or if there was more, we have an accurate representation of what Jonah preached. And he preached a message of warning. And as we look at this message, it's fair for us to say that this is a message of destruction, right? Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But when we look at this message closer, we see that this message includes both God's condemnation and God's compassion. God's condemnation and God's compassion. Now, God's condemnation is obvious. God is threatening to destroy Nineveh. It says Nineveh will be overthrown. And when you look at the word overthrown, it literally means to flip upside down. If you remember the incident in Judges when Gideon is about to attack the enemies, and then the enemy, one of the enemies has a dream... And he says that he had a dream that a loaf of bread came tumbling down a hill and it knocked down the tents and the tents lay flat. It says that the loaf turned the tent upside down so that the tent lay flat. 
That's the idea here, to destroy so that the nation lays flat. Or you can think about Sodom and Gomorrah. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, he uses this very same language. He overthrew those cities. Well, now we see that the Ninevites are facing the same situation. God is about to turn their city upside down, and he's about to completely demolish it. This was Jonah's message. He didn't preach a happy message that everyone wanted to hear, that everyone was going to be celebrating about. He actually joined the chorus of preachers from the very beginning of time throughout history and until now and until the end of time. Hebrews 11.7 says that Noah's life condemned the world. And Matthew 3.9 talks about John the Baptist and his message. And it says that he said, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That was their message. So what, Noah, what Jonah is doing is he's following Noah and John the Baptist and all of the other prophets, and he's preaching a message of condemnation, a message of warning to the Ninevites. And the reason that God had, has his people preach warning is because that is what gets our attention and causes us to stop and causes us to reflect on our lives. And ultimately, and hopefully, it causes us to repent and to turn to God. If there is no judgment, then why do we need salvation? Understanding that there is judgment gives us an appreciation for salvation, helps us understand what we are saved from. When I started college, I joined a Christian club as soon as I started, and it wasn't connected to Grace Community Church, just to lay that out at the beginning. But I started, I joined the Christian club, and we, one of the things that we did was we would go out from week to week and evangelize. And I did this for the first week. I didn't do it afterwards. You'll, you'll see why. But um, so we went, we went out with a group of people, and we handed out flyers, and we talked to people and talked to them about the gospel. And so me growing up at Grace Community Church and having a high view of scripture, I uh, was handing out the flyers and I started talking to a student and telling him that if you don't repent, you will go to hell. If you don't believe in God, you will go to hell. And that was our conversation and then he left. Well, after this conversation, the leader of this Christian club, he pulled me aside And he mildly rebuked me. He said to me, he said that here we don't tell people that they're going to hell. Like I said, this guy wasn't from Grace Church. (laughs) So I said in response, well, what if he's not a believer? What if he doesn't believe in God? And so he said to me, okay, here's how you should think about it. Let me help you understand, he said. He said, imagine a game of baseball. And I lost him right there. (laughs) But he said, imagine a game of baseball. The people who are playing the game, they're the really good Christians. The people who are sitting in the stands close to the field, they're the mediocre Christians. The people who are far outside in the stands, they're the so-so Christians. And then the people who don't believe in God, 
They're the non-Christians. They're outside of the stadium. And I thought that, I mean, I was confused, but I thought, so then what does a person do to go to hell? Because it seems like there's nothing you can do to go to hell. You reject God, and all you do is you miss a baseball game in heaven, right? <laughs> so there's nothing you can do to, to go to hell according to the theology of this leader. And of course, it didn't take me long to leave that Christian club and to uh, find another one. But if condemnation is not part of our message, then we are missing a major part of the gospel. We're missing a major part of the message that the Bible teaches and that it preaches and that it wants us to hear, wants all of humanity to hear. The Bible warns us over and over that those who reject God go to hell. Listen to Matthew 10, 28. Matthew 10, 28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. God himself will send those people who reject him to hell. And this is why Pastor John has said on a number of occasions that our greatest threat is God. Right, it's not exactly what the Ninevites needed to hear. It's this fear of destruction that forces the Ninevites to think about their lives. And that's why we have hundreds of thousands of Ninevites repent and believe in God because they're afraid of perishing. This is the purpose of the message of condemnation, to show people that they need to repent or they will perish. Now, in addition to condemnation, Jonah's message also expresses a message of God's compassion towards the people. The fact that God sends Jonah to warn the Ninevites in itself is an act of compassion. Because when you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, when God destroyed those two cities, he sent a message of warning only to Lot and his family. But by warning the entire city of Nineveh, God shows that city compassion. But in addition to this, God gives Nineveh 40 days to repent. 40 days to repent. Why does God give Nineveh 40 days to repent? It takes three days to go through the city. God could have easily said, yet three days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But God says 40 days. Now, on the one hand, 40 days is a long period of time. So it does express God's patience and God's grace in that way towards the people. Uh, At the same time, 40 days is actually a time period in the Bible that represents the fullness of time. And the fullness of time either to judge or to forgive, either to exact judgment or purification. If you think about the flood, it rained 40 days and 40 nights. And after those 40 days and 40 nights, the earth was flooded and the human race was destroyed. God took those 40 days to judge the world. At the same time, when Israel worshipped the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32, they sinned against God. And then Moses feared that because of this, God would reject the nation of Israel and that he would no longer lead them. Moses goes up to the mountain and he's on the mountain 40 days 
pleading with God to continue to lead them, to continue to guide them, to continue to be the God of Israel. And after those 40 days, God says that he will lead them. And he actually gives Moses the Ten Commandments, again, that Moses had shattered when he saw the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. And so now in Nineveh, God gives the people 40 days, a full period of time for the judgment or for their purification, for them to reject God or for them to repent and turn to God. And this is the character of God, to show patience, to show patience until the people, until the sinners repent. We've already seen and looked at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 and verse 15, and Pastor John mentioned it last Sunday, which shows how patient God is and how much he desires for the sinners to repent. He is waiting for the sinners to repent. And Jonathan Edwards, a familiar name, he preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if you haven't read it or heard it, I encourage you to go to the Grace Church website and just type in in the sermons, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and you'll hear Tom Patton read the sermon. And it's an excellent, excellent presentation of that sermon. Well, Jonathan Edwards, in that sermon, he says the following. He says, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. God's slowness to punish sinners is not coincidental. It is the deliberate expression of God's patient pleasure to see sinners repent. That is what he desires, our repentance. And this is what we see with the Ninevites, their repentance at the very end when 600,000 of them come to repent before God and come to believe in God. And the repentance is the second part of this passage. We see God's miraculous salvation of the Ninevites when we see the Ninevites repent and they repent immediately. Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed in God And they called the fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. This this is without question the greatest evangelistic harvest that the scriptures have and that possibly even human history has. Nothing like this is ever recorded in the scriptures. Possibly nothing like this has ever happened in human history. Remember the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? We have 3,000 people who come to believe in Christ. Jonah's preaching, 600,000 people believe in God, right? It's just a massive conversion. How do 600 people who are pagan, who are idolatrous, how do they come to believe in God? How does 600,000 people who are evil, who are wicked, who torture people, who are known for, for decapitating, for dismembering, for their vicious military raids. How does this people believe in God? Now, as you read about this time of history, we will see that there was a full eclipse of the sun sometime in that generation. And it might have affected the people about how they thought and how they viewed life. But the question is, did that make them believe in God? Did that make them repent? We also read in history that there were a series of plagues at that time in Assyria. 
And the question is, did that make them believe and repent before God? God may have used these things to make the people feel vulnerable. But these things on their own did not, they definitely did not cause the people to repent. We've had COVID in the world for two years now. Has any nation turned to God because of this? Has America turned to God because of this? Has any state in America turned to God because of this? Has any city in any state in America turned to God because of this? Obviously, the answer is no. If anything, sadly, America has turned further away from God over these past two years. There's no possible explanation for the repentance of Nineveh. It is an absolute miracle, supernatural activity of God. God worked in the hearts of the Ninevites to bring them to himself, to draw them to himself, and to cause them to repent. God worked in their hearts, and God saved them. That is why they believed. Now, this belief in Nineveh, in the Ninevites, their belief in God, does not simply mean that they believed what God had said. It actually means more than that, that they mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But then James 2.19 speaks about the condemning belief. And James writes, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. Belief that acknowledges God, but refuses to submit to God, and to turn from sin and to turn their lives toward God, is the belief of the demons. Belief that acknowledges God as Lord, and therefore submits to God, that is the belief of salvation. And this is the belief of all of the heroes of the Bible that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. They all lived their lives by faith or belief, and so they all obeyed God. Abel offered a sacrifice better than Cain by faith. Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death by faith. Noah built an ark, by faith, Abraham left his land, not knowing where he was going, it says in Hebrews 11:8, by faith. And then Abraham, when God gave him the promise of offspring in Genesis 15, it says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And Hebrews 11 says, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and the list goes on. They all lived by faith and they submitted their lives to God. Hebrews 11 says that such faith is required to come before God. You cannot come before God without this faith. And when we think about our own salvation, Ephesians 2.8 is clear. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is the belief that the Ninevites have as well. It's a saving faith. And we know this because we immediately see the fruit of their belief in their repentance. It says, they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And James 2.18 says that you have to demonstrate your faith by your works. Prove your faith, James writes. And this is what we see in the Ninevites. First, they call a fast and they demonstrate their repentance with actions. Now, we know what fasting is. We know that you stop eating when you fast because of an urgency of a situation. And the urgency can be repentance or it can be another urgent situation in your life. 
David, for example, fasted when uh, his son was born sick and he was dying from his uh, relationship, adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And so he fasted, praying for God to preserve that son. Esther asked Mordechai and the Jewish people to fast and to pray to God so that Haman would not destroy the Jewish people. Now, we also see fasting specifically in the context of repentance. The prophet Joel writes about this. He calls the people of Israel to repent because of their sin and to fast. In Joel 2.12, Yahweh himself says to the Israelites, Return to me. In other words, repent with all of your heart and with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Fasting shows that dealing with sin is a high priority. It's the highest priority. It takes precedence even over the basic necessities such as food. Food that preserves your physical life. Repentance preserves your spiritual life. And that's what we see the Ninevites do. They fast because they recognize the importance of repentance. Now then they put on sackcloth, they fast and then they put on sackcloth. And when they put on sackcloth, it shows their mourning over their sin. That's what sackcloth represents in the Old Testament. You think about uh, Genesis 37 when Jacob finds out that his son Joseph was uh, devoured by an animal. He actually was not devoured, but Jacob thinks that he was devoured. And at that point, when he hears this, Jacob, Jacob puts on sackcloth and expresses mourning for his son. One could also put on sackcloth because they're afraid of being destroyed. When King Hezekiah hears that the Assyrians are coming to destroy the nation of Judah, he is terrified. And in 2 Kings 19, verse 1, it says that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of Yahweh. This was the situation with the Ninevites. They were devastated, they were terrified, they were afraid that they were going to be destroyed. And so they fasted and they put on sackcloth. And the point of their fasting and their sackcloth is to show that they are now rejecting their lifestyle that they had been living up to this point. They're rejecting their sin and they're turning to live their lives in a way that please God. Mourning and grief for sin is part of true repentance and that's what the Ninevites are doing here. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says to them that he was glad that they were sorrowful, that they mourned. He says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, that he was glad that they were sorrowful to the point of repentance. He says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. And then he goes on to say, for you were made to have godly sorrow so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world brings about death. So there are two types of sorrow as well. One that leads to repentance and salvation, and the other one that does not lead to repentance, but leads to death. And the Ninevites, with their actions, they demonstrate here that they are not merely scared, but they are sorrowful to the point of repenting and changing their life so that their life is now pleasing to God. They are demonstrating a penitent 
heart. Now, like I already said, if one person believes, that's a miracle in its own right. But when you have a nation of 600,000 people believe, that is just an incredible miracle. And the text says that that's exactly what happened here. From the greatest of them to the least of them believed. From the greatest, the richest, the noblest, the highest in the social class, the highest echelon, to those who were the least, to those who were the poorest, they all repented. They all believed in God. And they show that by, by everyone believing, by everyone accepting this common status, they show that they are unworthy, that they're all unworthy. They can't win favor with God, whether it's money, whether it's their power, whether it's their influence, whether it's some kind of goodness, or whether it's poverty. They cannot please God by any means with their works. They recognize that they were all equally condemned, condemned before God and that they all needed to humble themselves before merit in any form before God. And this is the miraculous nature of this salvation. So the question is, why did the people repent? There's only one answer, God. The only reason that they repented was because of God. But the thoroughness, the magnitude of this repentance, which shows the miracle of this situation, doesn't even stop with the people. It says that the king also repented. And this is the third part of this passage. We see God's miraculous salvation of sinners when we see the Ninevite king himself repent. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his mantle from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and, and sat on the ashes. So not only did all the people repent, from the least of them to the greatest of them, even the king repented. Now, we don't know exactly who the king was. It doesn't say. It could have been, from history, it could have been Adad Nirari III or Ashurdan III. And I know that doesn't make a difference for you. But we know for sure that there is an Assyrian king who is in heaven right now. And we're going to meet that king. But even though the king had royal status, he became just like the rest of the people. When it came to the question of sinfulness, came to the question of repentance, he was no different. Now, note, the first of all, that the cause of his repentance was the word. It says that the word reached the king of Nineveh. The text wants us to notice that it was the word. It wasn't Jonah at this point, but the word that affected the king. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah is no longer in the picture. The word spread so quickly throughout the city that it came to the king before Jonah could come to the king. We never even get to day two in this story. We only get to day one and the king hears the word and the king repents. And this actually, the fact that this word spread so quickly illustrates how the revival took place, how the city took this, how the revival took the city by storm. And this also demonstrates God's powerful and miraculous work in that city. So the word affects the king. And then look at the expression of the king's repentance. As soon as the king hears this warning, he carries out four events that demonstrate his repentance. He arose from his throne 
And the fact that he arose demonstrates his urgency. We talked about this, that when God says to Jonah, arise, that demonstrates urgency. We now see the king arise, demonstrating the urgency of this situation. Then he laid aside his mantle from him, and the mantle was an outer garment that represented the status or the function of the person. Think about Elijah. Elijah had a mantle, and that represented that he was a prophet. The king had a royal mantle, and he wore that, and that would represent that he was the king. Well, he removes his mantle, and by doing that, he rejects his own position of royalty. He demonstrates incredible humility in doing this. He shows that as a human king, when he comes before God, it doesn't matter. It makes no difference. It's completely useless. It's completely worthless that he is a king on the human level. He recognizes that he has no human merit before God. Third, the king covered himself with sackcloth. And sackcloth is that same material that the people covered themselves with earlier. They clothed themselves with it. But we see that the king goes one step beyond what the people do. He not only clothes himself with sackcloth, he actually covers himself with sackcloth. And in doing this, he recognizes that he holds a greater responsibility. He's the king. He's the leader of the people. And so he covers himself with sackcloth in order to demonstrate this act of repentance. And finally, the king sat on the ashes, it says. The ashes, this would have been found outside of the city. This would have been the place where all of the trash and the garbage is burned. And there's a terrible and filthy and dirty smell around that area. Well, the king went out of his way to sit on the ashes to demonstrate his remorse and his repentance over his lifestyle, demonstrating what he deserves and what all of the people deserve. These four actions show the transformation of the king. He goes from throne to ashes, from mantle to sackcloth, from honor to dishonor, from pride to humility. He becomes the opposite of who he really is. And by doing this, the king shows that he knows that before God, he is simply a sinner who needs repentance. With these actions, he shows that he has remorse over the evil in his lifestyle, just like Jonah 1-2 says that God saw that there was evil in their hands. And so here we see that he recognizes this and he has the fear of God that God is going to destroy him. And so he takes that step of repenting before God so that God would forgive him and preserve his life. You look at all of this and you say, a five-word message did all of this? A five-word Sermon brings the entire nation to its knees, even the king. How is this possible? There's only one explanation. It's a miracle. There is no other explanation. Well, as you look at this, you can then ask, okay, so can we be certain that this was true repentance? Well, when Jesus was condemning the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 41, he says this. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And you think about this, that Jesus says this not only because he is God and he knows, but by that time, Jesus had already seen all of these Ninevites who had died and who had gone to heaven. So he already knew them personally. 
And this salvation of the Ninevites can be attributed to one factor and to one factor alone. It's God's pleasure to save the lost. That's why we can sit here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are an enduring God, that you find pleasure in salvation, in salvation of sinners. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful in being your representatives and living our lives in a way that demonstrates our loyalty to you. And Lord, with our words, that we would bring the gospel to those who do not yet believe. Lord, I pray that our thoughts, our words, and our actions would glorify your name. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.